thanks for having me here. My name is Dan Corrales. Uh, I can pronounce my name correctly most of the time, uh, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, I'm from the Mondock Heritage Center in Sydney, Montana. We're an art and history museum. Uh, I've been there since uh, January of 2017, and uh, my program today is Eastern Montana's Eden, uh, Irrigated Agriculture and the Lower Yellowstone Project, which I have to read off the screen because it's one of those really long historian type things. I just need the comma and the dates uh, behind there. But, uh, you know, I, I've always been kind of interested in water projects and dam projects. Uh, in part, you can make a lot of great dam jokes, uh, but also just for whatever reason that fascinated me. I studied uh, the Clear, Clearwater River in Idaho, which has the Dorshack Dam on it, which is, I think, the highest dam in the U.S. Maybe not anymore, but it was. Um, and I did also study treated wastewater in the Southwest for my, for my doctorate. Uh, so, but, but this is a little bit different for me, and it's a new topic to me. I, I came across it due to some current events, which we'll get to uh, in a little bit, you know, starting about May of last year. So I put a map up on the screen so you can look at that a little, for a little bit. While uh, I'm going to start out by reading a little passage from this wonderful uh, report with a very eloquent title, called Report on Lower Yellowstone Project, Golden Jubilee and Project Tour Session of the 11th Annual Water Users Irrigation Conference, Sydney, Montana, July 23 to 24, 1959, uh, put out by the Bureau of Reclamation. Uh, so on the first day of the conference, uh, for the address that was made by Reclamation Commissioner Floyd Dominey, uh, it was not as uh, interesting as the Ed Kimmick talk, or as funny, but he talked a little bit about the Lower he talked about the Lower Yellowstone project, and he kind of introduced it. He gave a shout out to William Clark. He talked about the 56,000 acres that are within the project, and then he came to this section. Many of the irrigators and dryland farmers were starting a new life in agriculture. They had been laborers, clerks, white collar workers, and even professional men, but all had a single goal: they were seeking new opportunities in the West. They were ambitious and eager, but they lacked farm know-how. The land was there, and the water was available for the irrigation of that land, but there were no tractors, trucks, or automobiles, or the other equipment that has made modern, mechanized farming considerably easier on the man's back and a woman's patience. Remember, it's 1959. <laughs> Not my words. Uh, there is still a lot of hard, two-fisted work connected with farming today, but when the Lower Yellowstone project was started, it was all hard work, as I am sure you pioneers who are seated at the table with me can testify. And then he went on to call the towns of Sydney and Fairview, which is in this Lower Yellowstone Valley. Uh, he called them confident and self-reliant. And then he talked about the positive accomplishments of the project. And so he actually said, what are these positive accomplishments? And then he cited the cumulative value of crops of $75,515,000. Million, $75, uh, he also cited just the, the success of sugar beet farming and sugar beet farming's connection to the cattle industry and mentioned the fattening of lambs and beef cattle. And I think that passage kind of, in addition to being in this great uh, government document, kind of highlights the two stories that I see going on here at the Lower Yellowstone Project. There is the basic story, which is that an the Bureau of Reclamation came in, 
uh, in the early 1900s, worked with uh, some workers and some farmers, built an irrigation project, and bam, it was successful by the mid-20th century. Uh, that's kind of the story that they're, they're telling, you know, in part through some of that work. But the broader story is, is about the work itself, and uh, the local residents, the workers, understanding the landscape through their labor and getting a connection to that land through their work. And it was more than just a, uh, you know, as, as Susan points out in her presentation, it's more than just you go in and you direct nature on where to go. It was much more of a give and take between humans and the landscape. And it also involved kind of connections and intersection between local and national forces. So my uh, presentation is really going to cover those probably very briefly after that long little introduction. But you see from the map here, you get an idea of where the project starts. Uh, just north of Glendive, where that big red dot is, and then it extends up uh, to the Montana-North Dakota border, and some of the project is in North Dakota as well. Uh, so, a little, a little context for you, very, very brief context. This area of eastern Montana you know, is historically grasslands, it's sagebrush, uh, various different human groups have used and traveled through the area. Uh, native groups, Sioux tribes, the Cinnaboyan tribes, explorers and traders uh, like William Clark. Uh, and the first Euro-American settlers really started to arrive in the 1880s. Uh, by the turn of the 20th century, uh, irrigation became a hot topic. And uh, there's kind of a local legend. Uh, a guy, I forget his name, he's living in the town of Mondak, which is smack dab on the, middle, on, the, on the North Dakota Montana border. Half the side is in Montana. I think that's the side where he can drink. And then half the side is in North Dakota and that's the side where he can uh, do other adult things or else it's switched, but that, that's the story. Uh, and, but there's a, a man there and he's visiting with Teddy Roosevelt and Teddy Roosevelt said that if I get elected, uh, I will bring an irrigation project to the valley. Uh, and then of course, you know, in 1902, uh, the U.S. government passed the Reclamation Act, with, which authorized the development of irrigation on arid lands in the West. And I, what do you know? Teddy Roosevelt was elected, I think, 1901-ish. I don't know if my presidential history is correct. Uh, but those two things coincide. I don't buy the story at all. But it's a colorful little story that people like to tell. Uh, but really what happened was settlers and promoters in the Yellowstone Valley advocated for the government to come out and do an irrigation project. And so the first reconnaissance happened in 1903, and surveyors came out to Terry, Montana, and they're going to try to start the project there. Uh, instead, they said the light fall of the Yellowstone River and the high elevation of the land above the river made it impracticable to cover any land above Glendive. Uh, so in 1904, they started again, and they resurveyed the project uh, 18 miles below Glendive. And by below, I mean north of Glendive. We're talking uh, downriver here. Uh, so what the project entailed was a diversion dam on the Yellowstone River that would divert water. Uh, and Susan explained all this, so I don't really have to. But would uh, pool water up on the river and then divert it into a canal and send it to farmers to irrigate cash crops. And that's essentially what the project is. And you see a picture here of the wooden structure that is placed in the river. 
And so that wooden structure is you know, under construction in that picture, but it is like buried, the water goes right over it, it is in the river and kind of rocks are piled on top of it. And the other picture here is the head gate when showing water going into the canal. And this is the diversion dam, kind of an early historical picture, and then another picture taken from the Department of the Interior. And you can see there, where you see all the rapids starting, uh, that is the dam right there sitting in the water. Uh, and then you see the head gate and the canal leading off uh, on the top of the picture there off to the left of the river. Uh, we actually at the Mondack have a scale model of the wooden structure there, but it's super heavy, otherwise I would have brought it here for, for a show and tell. Uh, but, you know, you can always visit us in Sydney and check that out. So, in addition to the dam, the irrigation project consisted of all kinds of other features. So, everything from, and I'm going to lose my spot here, flumes and culverts, drops, turnouts, ditches, drains, bridges, telephone wires, telegraph wires, worker camps, pumps, and lifts. And these are some of the pictures that we have in our collections of some of those pieces of infrastructure. Uh, with the horse for scale there next to the pictures. And the, I don't know if I have the one of the small child there uh, in, the, in the lower right, which looks exceedingly dangerous. I don't let my kids go near the irrigation dams or irrigation canals. Uh, so that was, the project was mostly completed in 1909, at least completed far enough to send the first water down the canal. And there was a little party. As you can see here, I don't actually know the location, but it's a nice little picture of a group of farmers and probably workers and people involved with the project celebrating the water going down the canal. And this was a huge deal. There's great optimism over irrigation at this time. And to give you an idea, some of the irrigation promoters the railroad, like the Northern Pacific, which got into the area in 1912, uh, they put out publications to promote the irrigation project and bring people to the area. One of those said that when water is furnished by the government, the lower Yellowstone Valley will certainly resemble, in a measure at least, the beauty and productiveness of the famous Valley of the Nile. Uh, and another one here, and this one comes from, this is actually a newspaper article. It's coming from a special to the Minneapolis Journal. So shout out to any other fellow Minnesota people here. Uh, this one says that, to one who visits today the beautiful valley of the lower Yellowstone of Montana in North Dakota, it seems a far cry to the days of the Indian who once grazed his ponies on this grass-covered plain. And yet, and yet it was not so long ago that the Indian, the road agent, and the cattle rustler in turn held full sway in this section. Now keep in mind this is 1910. Uh, today in all directions the eye meets comfortable farmhouses and buildings and broad areas of cultivated fields crossed and recrossed with the irrigation canals which have transformed the valley from a grazing country into a prosperous thriving agricultural community. This same valley which is now dotted with farmhouses in 1884 was unsafe to travelers. So it gives you a little idea of some of the, some of the optimism and the, the, what they saw as progress. 
local newspapers also saw the same thing. They described uh, the promise and uh, the prosperity that this lower Yellowstone project would bring to the area. As you see on the screen, they referred to it as a paradise. Uh, another publication, this one put out by a railroad, said that this vast empire will be made to blossom like the rose under the influence of the water that will be distributed over these fertile fields by, and this part is key, this new government ditch. Uh, there, there's another publication that I, that I have too that we have in our collections. I actually have no idea where it come, came from because the cover is gone and there's no other identifying information, but it held some testimonials from settlers and visitors to the area, and many of those people said that the Lower Yellowstone Valley was more fertile than Iowa, it was better than the Red River Valley in North Dakota, and I don't know if they're saying that because it's one of those rivers run, that, that runs north, uh, and they also promoted things like the quality of churches and the friendliness of the people, all in an effort to get people to come and irrigate in, in and around Sydney and Fairview and Savage. Now, fast forward a little, and uh, th these pictures on the screen here are from another publication with a, uh, another government one, A Half Century of Progress, uh, from 1958, put up by the Bureau of Reclamation. And if uh, you look at these pictures, all of those promises and prosperity came true. So you get a little before and after here, uh, before irrigation and after irrigation. I don't think the captions are quite big enough there, but the before picture there, shows on the left, says that it's virgin land and a treeless landscape that shows the bleak profile before irrigation. And on the right, sugar beets are being harvested on what looks like an orderly farm with the great rows of crops. Uh, another example, this is a before and after of Sydney, Montana. So Sydney, uh, right at the start or before irrigation, was uh, a dirt road, a downtown, or a dirt main street with a few buildings. Uh, I learned from a program earlier today that this dirt road could cause problems for vehicles. So they might get stuck <laughs> in the mud. Uh, and then fast forward to the 50s, and Sydney is a thriving community, result of the success of diversified farming through irrigation and a well-designed reclamation project. And again, that's largely correct. In 1910, Sydney was a little over 300 people. Uh, by 1960, it was over 4,500 people. So there's a huge influx of population and a huge amount of growth and development. And another before and after picture, we have an early farm, really at the beginning of irrigation, and then a farm with irrigation. And this one, I particularly want to point out that the caption says it's a well-laid-out farmstead that shows the progress due to irrigation. Uh, and to give you another quote, since I just love all these government quotes, uh, as part, also in that uh, same uh, document, one of the statements made in there said that wise investments such as this one in the Lower Yellowstone Project add to the nation's strength, providing an endless flow of wealth and opportunity, uh, pun intended maybe, I don't know. The initial federal expenditure is ultimately returned many times over. So this project, done by local workers, but 
funded in part by the government, increased national strength. So keep that in mind. That's how people are, are viewing the area. So that's really that basic story, but there's a broader story to tell that's about work. And uh, to show you some of that work, I, look, I turn to more photographs from our collections. Uh, this is a picture you can see here of workers digging a canal. So a lot of the work was done by hand, done with horses. Uh, it was a massive undertaking to build this canal uh, that paralleled the river from north of Glendot all the way up to the to the Montana-North Dakota border. Uh, in addition to some of that manual labor, uh, workers also use these excavating machines. And in this picture, you can kind of see off to the side that there's a little railroad built there and a cart with some horses moving some of the material out of there. So just, again, keep in mind this massive undertaking. Uh, in addition to those sorts of materials, uh, they use dynamite to clear some of the canals and to blow away rock. Uh, in one case, there's an article from the Yellowstone News, which is a Mondack newspaper that talks very graphic language about a man who died in a dynamite accident. Uh, other pictures that uh, the Lower Yellowstone Project office in Sydney has, which I don't have with me, show workers with those hand drills, drilling holes. There's a picture of a of a person in one of those really old school diving suits with the giant helmets uh, that was charged with diving down into the water where the dam was to check for leaks. So dangerous work, incredible work. Uh, but there's another kind of work that really started when water first started going down the, down the canal and continued all the way through today. And that is the glorious work of maintenance and repair. So when water first went down into the main canal, they tried to send it slowly, and some of the reports from the Lower Yellowstone Project describe this. Uh, water went through and everything was okay, and then some of the sides of the canal started collapsing. So this is an example of a washout and some workers going out to, to do that repair work. So they had to stop the flow and then re do some repairs and try again. And this happened, uh, I combed through a lot of annual reports at the Lori Ellison Project office, and this happened every year. They detail the costs involved, the, the workers involved, and just the type of work involved. A lot of it was maintenance of canal work. Uh, but another exciting one is removing weeds. So an early picture here of uh, some workers removing weeds from one of the gates for the water. But more, probably more fascinating to me, at least, um, I'm kind of more into more recent history. In the 1970s, the annual reports from the project started showing uh, an entire section devoted to weed control. And uh, there's a period where the reports essentially talk about, and they don't use these words, these would be mine, a war on willows. So willow seedlings would end up uh, getting planted on the sides of the canal, and they needed to maintain a certain right-of-way, so they have to go through and remove those. And they talk about using different types of pesticides, and then farmers being upset with those pesticides or chemicals that they're using. Uh, some didn't work. Uh, when some did work, then they allowed other plants to come in, and uh, unwanted plants. And so there is this huge give and take between uh, fashioning the canal and nature growing back, and then doing it all over again. And in addition to all of that, they dredge the canal every year because you send the water through. 
and it brings through a lot of sediment with it. Uh, so other than that repair work, the other work involved was really about getting labor. So there is a human labor sh shortage for, for much of the project. Uh, a lot of the traditional histories of the, of the Lower Yellowstone project kind of paint this as a blame game. They say that the settlers that were there in the valley, they didn't know how to use it. They didn't know how to irrigate. They didn't want to give up their cowboy boots. Uh, they preferred to stay on dry land or work in the cities or do dry land farming. Uh, I, that, some of that might be a little harsh and they're trying to glorify it. But really, there weren't a lot of people that were ready to do the work. The settlers that were there were inexperienced and they needed some training. And so what happened was uh, the Lower Yellowstone Project promoters and farmers brought in outside workers. And uh, I'm going too far here. We'll go back to there. You can look at that picture for a second. So one of the um, sources of, the outside, of outside labor were Mexican migrants. So uh, a lot of farmers early on in the 1920s brought in workers from Mexico. But workers also came from other places like the Philippines and Jamaica. And so this happened on kind of an annual basis at harvest time. Uh, it happened at planting time as well. And this, uh, at least the research that I uncovered, was a little bit controversial to some extent. In 1924, the U.S. was trying to push through an immigration act that was actually related to, I believe, Japanese immigrants. And the American Legion in, in Sydney, because of all the, all the talk about uh, what they called aliens coming into the country, they issued a statement published in the Sydney Herald that said that Mexican workers are, and I'm just going to use my own language, are super important to the Lower, Lower Yellowstone Project. Uh, they're crucial to fulfilling the labor shortage, and they don't do any harm. They're law-abiding citizens like the rest of us. So pretty, pretty cool stuff. And then in 1925, Holly Sugar moved in. Uh, again, Lower Yellowstone Project promoters and advocates were able to get Holly Sugar to build a factory in Sydney, and that gave the sugar beet farmers a place to send their crops and that really solidified the Lower Yellowstone project. But again, there was a need for workers. And so Holly Sugar, uh, which is now Sydney Sugars, uh, went out and looked for workers in other parts of the country, workers that knew how to do irrigation. Uh, one of those workers that came, and I'm highlighting this one because we have a lot of his stuff in our, in our collections, uh, is a man named Santos Carranza. He and his family came from Mexico, but they immigrated to Colorado. And then in Colorado, they got wind of holly sugar and eating farmers up in uh, Savage and Sydney. And so they moved there. And Santos worked in the beet fields. Uh, his family eventually, by 1935, was able to own their own farm. They stuck around. And then he went to work for Sydney Sugars, and he became a recruiter. And he worked there for, I think, over three decades. And he would make trips annually down to Mexico and Oklahoma and recruit workers to come up to the Sydney area. And that sort of uh, migrant labor, to some extent, still happens today. Even after mechanization and technology, 
there are a lot of people that come from Brazil to work on family farms. There are people that come from Mexico. There are people that come from other parts of the country up to the Lower Yellowstone Valley to do some of the harvesting. Uh, and uh, this kind of quote comes from uh, oral history that we have. He did a couple different oral histories. Uh, I think one of them was actually published in the Montana Historical Society's uh, quarterly journal in 1985. So, you know, go into your archives and check that out. Uh, now, he was also interesting because he described a lot of the work involved, and he described how it was done by hand. There's one passage where he's talking about thinning beets and how you have to pull up three sugar beets with one hand and leave the other one in there in the ground to thin them out. And if anybody's ever seen these sugar beets, they're pretty big. So I, I don't know if they're that big when they're, when they're doing the thinning. But he made the work sound, he described it as sweaty and hard work, but he also described it as good work, which kind of shows his uh, connection that he's making to the landscape. Now, in addition to people like him, Holly Sugar sought out other settlers. And this picture here shows kind of one of the more notable instances. It's a group of settlers from Brush, a uh, group of people from Brush, Colorado, <coughs> that the sugar company recruited to come up and move and resettle in the Lower Yellowstone Valley. So, just to give you another example of how they got some of their workers. Now, for most of the research that I uncovered for the more modern part of the Lower Yellowstone project, it's super mundane. Uh, not a ton happened. It's mostly repair work, talk about profits and proceeds and you know, how many crops were raised. Uh, but what that tells me and, and what this tells me is that getting that labor and doing all of that work made that project a success like you saw uh, glorified in those uh, reports that, uh, that I held out there. And then it also tells me that, you know, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't do like super extensive research through newspapers because we don't have a searchable database, but I looked as much as I could and the articles about the project get fewer and further between. And what that tells me is that this irrigation project really became a part of the landscape. And a couple more modern things really kind of solidify that for me. One of those is more of a story that I got from a local business person in Sydney who grew up in the Sydney area. Uh, he and I were at like a little get together for some sort of youth sport thing for my, for my kid. And he was describing how in high school he would go and surf in the irrigation canals. And uh, my wife who was there at the time, we both said, what? Uh, and so he went on to describe how what he meant by surfing in irrigation canals was that he and his friends would hook a rope onto their truck, uh, they'd get uh, some sort of surfing device, and they'd drive the truck along the irrigation canal and surf through the canals and have a great time. And probably the, the best part or the hardest part was when there would be a bridge and they'd have to figure out how to, how to get around the bridge. Now, I mean, I, at the time, I'm just laughing because it's, and I'm kind of, again, saying what seems incredulous. Uh, but now when I think about it, and as I was doing this project, that really says that this was just, this is just part of what you do. It's part of the landscape. Uh, and then one other thing that kind of shows that, and this brings a picture to more modern times. 
as in a few months ago. Uh, these, this is a group of people of uh, L'Oreal Stone Valley residents, probably most, mostly from Sydney, that traveled to the bustling metropolis of Great Falls to attend a court hearing about an injunction for, for a dam project on the Lower Yellowstone on the Yellowstone River. And very briefly, what that project is, is the Army Corps of Engineers is proposing to uh, replace the existing dam with a more modern dam, as well as a fish bypass to help a fish called the pallid sturgeon uh, better navigate the river. The pallid sturgeon is on the endangered species list, and the injunction was filed by an environmental group to stop all this, because they think the best solution for the pallid sturgeon is to take the dam out completely. So, in a nutshell, that's the story. But uh, Sydney area and Lower Yellowstone Valley area sent busloads of people to support in, in support of the Lower Yellowstone project. And out of that, the Department of the Interior and the Army Corps of Engineers they do environmental impact statements and they take public comment. And nearly all of the public comments from these residents start out with some version of the following. I've lived here for 45 years, and I know that, that agriculture and this irrigation is a great thing. Uh, others might say that I know the workers that worked on the Lower Yellowstone project. I know the farmers. They're stewards of the land. They are environmentalists. Please keep the Lower Yellowstone project intact. Uh, and, and even one person said, I didn't even know anything about the Lower Yellowstone project. I didn't notice it but I know it's important. And what that says to me is that, you know, rather than this story of progress and conquest over nature, that give and take, that work, that, that connection to the land that all the residents experience uh, is what shaped their lives and what kind of continues to shape the people in that area and how they view it.